This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I am your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest for part two uh, this week is Vinny Chalurzo of Russian River Brewing. Welcome back, Vinny. Thanks. Again. Good, good to be here again. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been uh, all of a few minutes since we ended yeah. the last episode, but uh, we're going to pretend that it's been a whole week. Uh, <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, as the uh, brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. G&D backs every project they touch and provides service second to none. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at GD chillers.com and tell them Vinny sent you. Yep. <laughs> I love G&D. You do. You do. Also, uh, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you'd want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. And yours, your five-barrel system uh, from SS Brewtech is coming, and yep. we'll be here soon. Yeah, and, we're uh, looking forward to it, and um, we're also going to have Gresser, the same company that built our open top fermenters, build us a little mini five-barrel open top. Ooh, yeah, it's going to be nice. this little cute nice. mini-me open top. It'll be in the in the uh, pilot brewery down in the the restaurant here at the new brewery in Windsor. That's a great, let's talk about open, open fermenting, but first we got, you got to talk to me about Simcoe. Yeah. So we, we ended the last show on Simcoe. It's uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, I was using Simcoe when it was an experimental uh, YCR 014, um, which was Yakima chief uh, research or ranches. Um, I don't remember which one it was for the YCR, but, um, was ranches or research, but um, it was Jason Peralt, and he had picked that up from, uh, finished that hop off from Chuck Zimmerman, who was his protege and pretty much taught him everything he knows about breeding, and uh, I talked about CFJ90 in the last episode, and that becoming Centennial, where the the C, the F, and the J stood for different hop breeders, and the C was for Chuck for uh, Chuck Zimmerman. So uh, he he was a breeder that was a part of the breeding going decades back to yeah. a hop like Centennial too. So, um, you know, Jason learned from the best. But anyways, uh, I would get these packages of um, experimental hops through my Yakima chief uh, rep, Gerard Lemons, who is a legend in the hop world, who's now retired and living back in England. And he would say, oh, you know, they're from our research program or from our breeding program. It's just getting started. Um, our breeder, and I'd say, well, who does this? And he goes, oh, well, he's a, a young kid. He would call Jason. And I was young then, too. And, and then I would brew with these experimental hops. And 
things like Warrior and Atanum and, and Simcoe and were some of the early ones. And then the, the promise was that I would then send Growl, I'd give Gerard Growlers back and he would send them back to, to Yakima, I think. And so Jason would hear about me and I would hear about Jason, but we didn't know each other. And now we're, we're very close friends. But, uh, but Simcoe just knocked my socks off. And we do a beer called Hop To It, single hop beer. That's what we always test new hops through. Um, I'm a big fan of In a Final Recipe, Blind Pig, Pliny, Happy Hops. I use a lot of hop varieties. Like Happy Hops is like nine hop varieties. Wow. And Blind okay. Pig is, I think, six. And Pliny six or seven. And, and I just like that, the layering of the flavors. And that maybe you can't pick out which hop it is, but the, the sum you know, makes the total. And, and Simcoe is just amazing, that, that really fragrant, you know, at the time they were really pine driven. And it wasn't just until years later I found out that you could pick them early for grapefruit and middle for pine and later for pungent. And I didn't realize it until years later, but, you know, I mean, it became the cornerstone of Pliny the Elder. Yes, there's multiple hop varieties in Pliny, but Simcoe is the main hop. And I really built the recipe around Simcoe and you know what what a lot of beer drinkers and young brewers don't know is that Simcoe was a hop that almost didn't happen they planted it and they ripped it all out and uh, Mike Smith at Loftus Ranches so so Simcoe is owned the rootstock is owned by the carpenters who have carpenter ranches the Peralt who have Peralt farms and the Smiths who have Loftus and they own that rootstock and they ripped all of it out, but maybe like one acre because it wasn't selling. They actually had, I remember where they had to throw out like 50,000 pounds of Simcoe oh. because there, there was no one buying it. I mean, right. I was using it and a handful of other brewers were using it. And, and then when we uh, left Corbell, our original location and opened up in Santa Rosa in 2004 in downtown Santa Rosa, we made Pliny a uh, regular beer. And it's kind of neat if you look at the growth of Simcoe, it follows the trajectory of the growth of Pliny or vice versa. And, you know, as much as how important Simcoe is to me, um, I think Pliny was and is, and, and I know the Carpenters and the Smiths and Peralts will tell you the same thing. And Natalie and I are really proud of that because, you know, these are family, American family farms that were really struggling at the time because, you know, the, the hop industry was not driven by craft. Right. It was driven by big breweries who only cared about alpha acid and the lowest price possible. And, you know, where, whereas craft brewers are like, we don't care about, you know, alpha acid. We want oils and flavor and aroma. And in fact, the hop quality group is our slogan is it's a, a it's oils over alpha acid. It's a comment that uh, Dan Carey from New Glarus yeah. came up with in that, that first trip to Yakima when we were building what the organization of what the hop quality group is going to be. And, and it's really true. Right. And, and so, you know, that was Simcoe. And Simcoe was originally bred to be a bittering hop. And hmm. it just wasn't high enough in alpha acid. But, but Jason was like, oh, man, it has this crazy, amazing aroma. And then we're like, well, let's turn it into an aroma hop. And, you know, that's why you shouldn't look at the old school way of looking at hops saying it's bittering or aroma or multipurpose. I mean, in my book, every hop is is multipurpose. It can be anything, you know. I mean, just the fact that we're using CTZ for, for dry hopping 
you know, and it is, it is classically a bittering hop. Yeah. So, anyways, but uh, but yeah, I love Simcoe. Still, one of my favorite hops, and uh, really um, happy that it made it. And it, you know, these these farms that were struggling back then, it was really the hop that helped them get over the hump. That really is a, a story about craft beer that uh, doesn't necessarily get told enough. That uh, you know, there is that impact beyond just you know the breweries themselves, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and that agriculture being such a crucial part of it in terms of decommoditizing, you know, the, the hops that these farms are growing, taking them, you know, past just, you know, how can you maximize alpha and into uh, looking at even, uh, you know, estate quality, you know, pick timing and all of these other things. I mean, we take for, you know, brewers talk about that now, but this is still something that's maybe 10 years old. Yeah. I mean, at, at the most, you know, and for such a major 400 million, 500 million dollar a year agricultural industry in the United States in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, this is a humongous change for, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. um, for this agricultural business, um, you know. And yet, you know, for a lot of sense, by a lot of sense, we're just in early days oh, with all of this. Definitely early. Because it's, you know, let's not forget, you only get to pick hops once a year. Yeah. So it takes time. So we've done this 10 times now since, uh, you know, craft beer has really <laughs> taken off. That's, I mean, it's a weird way to think about it, but uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's, I think it's really important, though, uh, yeah. to, for brewers to just don't forget that and be this painfully patient because it does take time. Yeah. You, know, so. you mentioned you wanted to see more brewers contract again and that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the action has been moving to the spot market. What's uh, what's your drive behind that? Just that it it makes for a more stable industry. Yeah. And um, it makes for higher quality hops, because um, if if a small brewer is buying off the spot market, those are the leftover hops. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that a high tide floats all boats. Yeah. And that we need to be all quality driven and 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 if you're not contracted you're potentially getting hops that are they're not i don't know if they're bad but they're certainly not going to be as good as the other ones because they're i just i just feel like the the growers have more at stake when everything's contracted because they know that you know I, we need to fulfill all these contracts because a lot of growers are, are, are grower owners of hop companies. Mm-hmm. So, right. Um, and it, and it just makes for a healthier industry. Well, it seems like it puts those relationships into more concrete terms. And also, uh, you know, yeah. as cementing those relationships, uh, you know, creates a performance incentive on the parts of the grower to keep those relationships, uh, you know, strong and have them be responsive to the brewers and the brewers needs in a very, you know, kind of direct manner. You know, again, that's something that craft has brought about that uh, macro beer never cared about the, uh, you know, that direct, you know, feedback from brewers uh, in that loop uh, as it goes back to the growers. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about open fermentation. I'm seeing the, the background uh, photos on your uh, your <laughs> monitors here, and they're of uh, some, some big uh, open fermenters that you've installed here in this new brewery. As we were taking the tour earlier today, you were uh, fermenting Pliny and, uh, and even the hoppy beers in, uh, yeah. in some of these big clean rooms with open fermenters. And, uh, you know, that 
seems a little crazy compared to uh, uh, what most brewers are doing today with uh, with their IPAs. Yeah, what did you think of that? What did you think of the yeast <laughs> sliding down from the open top down into the yeast collector tank that's set into the ground? I can't wait till I see Natalie's stop uh, motion photo, a time-lapse <laughs> photo of that uh, that you're going to post on social media. It'll yeah. probably be out by the time this uh, episode Actually, airs. it is because I got a text from Tommy saying... It's already out. ...between when we were in between the yeah. first session and this, he goes, loved the the Pliny footage today or whatever uh, whatever Tommy said so uh, well as soon as we're done talking right. about it, I can't wait to go see that it, yeah. it's uh, it was really fun to watch it's such yeah. a visual thing yeah. um, from a from a functional perspective though why why move fermentation into open fermenters for IPAs yeah so I mean it's not a hundred percent what we do yeah. but we have open fermentation and we're using it more and more and we're getting these incredibly clean flavors from everything we do in open top, whether it's STS Pills or all of our Belgian beers. Um, For a Belgian beer, it's particularly interesting because you're gonna ferment really warm, typically, and so you can dissipate that heat more easily because Mm. there's no lid on the tank, and the tanks are also one-to-one ratio, meaning that they're as wide as they are tall. And then there's a hole in the side of the tank that the yeast can come out of, it's natural top cropping, if you will, go down a slide and do a yeast collector and then that yeast can be used for, you can dump it or we can mm-hmm. use it for future fermentation or propagate. Um, we're also getting any of the trube uh, out of the tank that gets entangled in the foam because you know not all of the um, trube is gonna be left behind in the whirlpool, is even as nice yeah. of a whirlpool as we have. So you can, you can make a cleaner beer that way and end up with cleaner yeast, even if all the yeast settles to the bottom and we don't top crop it. Um, you get more fermentation byproducts blowing off in an open top fermenter that's a one-to-one ratio like ours because there's more surface area and there's less distance for the CO2 mm. to kind of scrub. Versus the tall and narrow the, tank. You know, the one to three ratios or the, you know, you, some of those tanks you see at the big breweries that are just like missiles that are one to right, five, right. you know, ratio. And so those are all the things. They're nuances but it, it to me is a lot like Holco and hops. It's it's going back. It's taking it back to a traditional way of brewing. You know, quite frankly, it's a stupid way to spend money. We could have <laughs> in the space that we have yeah. ten batches worth of of open top OTF, as we say, open top fermenter. We always use the acronym OTF. Space. We probably could have put in our our closed top cellar again, which is 36 or 38 batches worth of beer, come pretty close to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is a dumb way to Another spend Another terrible money, financial but, decision, sure. But it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. And what's also, it's, it's interesting for the guests because we set the room at level one and a half. It's our being John Malkovich floor, <laughs> so. I guess someone listening is going to have to have seen that movie to know what that means. I'm old enough to know what that means, yes. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, but we set that floor at one and a half so you can look down into the tanks and see it. So it becomes very educational for the the consumer. Uh, And then from the brewing, what's amazing is we've run six different yeasts through, and every one of them has a different foam, a different croissant. And it's really cool to watch that and and see the difference. And, And, you know, you usually don't get to see that. So, but even um, on a sensory side, you mentioned that uh, you know some of uh, when you put those in front of your sensory team that they become some of their most favorite batches yeah. of some of your yeah. classic beers. Absolutely, and we've had customers come in that like know STS and yeah. say, you know, wow, STS is just a little bit cleaner, and you know, STS is a big pilsner. Yeah, it's meant to be a big pilsner, but you know, it still has a Russian River signature to it, but it also has some classic German notes to it, and you know, even I hear that a lot from 
brewers that know STS and it's like, there's something different about it. It's cleaner. And, and so, you know, there, there are nuanced differences that right. we're, that we're getting. And yet it also helps tell the story of beer. And we've designed this brewery, not only to make great beer, but to give an amazing customer experience. And so whether you're on the self-guided tour or the guided tour, if we have wort beer in the open top fermenters, you can see it. Yeah. So interesting yeah interesting so a lot a lot of experimentation to go in the future too there which is going to be a lot of fun yeah well we're trying to cover a lot of ground here uh, on the podcast let's uh, make a, a pivot into talking to you about sour beer before we do that uh, great beers are made from select ingredients with bsg you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way let bsg be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft for more information visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374 two seven three nine also this episode is brought to you by craftbeer.com bringing you the stories and personalities behind america's small and independent breweries okay what are you gonna open for us Vinny? Uh, beatification so our 100 percent spontaneous fermented beer and uh this is a uh this is from our pub so this is from uh santa rosa and um it's we, so when we make our spontaneous beer, we um, blend multiple batches of what we call Synambic, which is our spontaneous uh, base beer. And then we make a blend and we do it. Uh, we don't do it traditionally like the Belgians would do to make right. goose. We'll use multiple batches and make this disproportionate blend. So this has like eight or nine batches disproportionately blended in. And we've been doing spontaneous beer since 2006, mm-hmm. and um, which puts us one of the first modern spontaneous brewers in America in modern era. Um, of course, I'm sure they were spontaneous <laughs> yeah, sure. years ago. But, Before um, they knew what yeast was. Exactly, yeah. 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 But um, it took us a long time to figure out like how to um, tame the acidity our our early batches of beatification um when we started so batch one was not uh spontaneously fermented but uh, from batch two it was and batch one was a blend was two different was two barrels i they were old lafali barrels that uh ah. peter uh, and lauren gave me from new belgium and uh, and then from batch two on became spontaneous before that the first batch was inoculated but those those early batches were just so acidic and it just took us time to to figure out you know how to tame that in a spontaneous yeah. manner and because the we, goal isn't just to make overly acidic beer it's a, to make a balanced flavorful approach how uh how did you ultimately uh over generations of this beer start yeah. to tame that acidity yeah because if you if you say to a lambic brewer in belgium um you know sour beer they there's like, it's not sour I mean, and it's true, you know, uh, Lambic Goose has an acidity to it, a tartness to it, but it isn't bracingly sour like some of our early batches right, were. Right. And so at, at the pub, we do a non-traditional process. And I remember something Jean Van Roy told me years ago, you can make spontaneous beer anywhere in the world, but it just may be a different process. And so I embrace that. So we cool the war. We make a very traditional war. Jean Van Roy of Jean Van Cantillon. Roy of Cantillon, yes. So I think if you say Jean... 
I mean, I know what you mean. I mean, the only other person he, he gets a single name like Vinny, or I mean, you could also think of uh, <laughs> you know Tommy. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's I know another Jean in the industry, uh, but uh, anyway, anyways, uh, Jean Marie Rock from mm-hmm. formerly of Orval, so he's right. retired now, but uh, he's right up there in my book with Jean Van Roy. Anyways, um, but yeah, just that that idea of that you can do it anywhere, and so I embrace that, and and we didn't have a cool ship at the pub in Santa Rosa like we do now here in Windsor. So we built what we call a horny tank and it's a 20 foot long, three foot deep and about maybe two foot, two foot wide. So it's this long trough. Quite frankly, it looks like a men's urinal at a ballpark. (laughs) So I was jokingly, I've said that a million times. So it's not, it's not anything I haven't said before, but anyways, we, we pump warden that's already been cooled through the cool ship or through the heat exchanger. But we, we do a traditional recipe, you know, 30 or 35% unmalted wheat. The rest is malted barley. They're aged hops. Um, but we cool it down, and then we let it sit overnight in the barrel room. And so it's picking up the bugs that are in that room from previous batches of temptation, supplication, consecration, what have you. And, um, and that's what makes it. So controlling the temperature was, hmm. was the first thing. It was just like, well, let's just not pump it in as warm. Let's let it be cooler. Um, the time, so that's something we're we're really hyper focused on um, down there at the pub is how much time it's spent in the horny tank and what temperature. And then once we brought the temperature down low enough, because I was worried that if I brought it down too much, no bugs would. So what temperature are you bringing it in at? Um, a very conventional sixty-eight Fahrenheit. And so and, was that just slowing down the lactic acid producing bacteria, yeah. which tend to work, you know, faster at higher temperatures? Yeah, it, okay. it, that's exactly what it was. And so in the past, really, what we were doing was just making this highly acidic lactic, and eventually yeah. some PDO and Brett would would work in. And we did a we did a study once with a lab in Napa, and we ended up with seventeen different microorganisms in synambic brood at the pub. So it wasn't like it was just simple like sure. Brett Lacto, PDO, and some sack, and that was it. There was all kinds of craziness in there. And now we're starting a program here in Windsor with the same thing. And so by adjusting the temperature down, that and, and sometimes we go lower than that because you know, we'll sometimes do a spontaneous beer during the summer and see what we get. We know that there is more, you know, bugs and critters in the air at that time, so we will go cooler than that 68 but 68 ends up being that's hmm. 64 to 68 is where we live whereas now we've got this new old school traditional cool ship and we open the windows and the cool air comes in and and it cools it down and then the next day we go to the uh, barrels and then about a week after that we'll see fermentation but it's been fun having a clean slate in windsor so you're saying now at the new brewery here in Windsor, you actually are using a more traditional cool it in the cool ship process because you can kind of manage how you know, the speed at which that cools. Yeah. And we wanted to, you know, we, we knew we weren't going to de- uh, walk away from our spontaneous beer in Santa Rosa. Like yeah. We're still in you the still future. Have- <laughs> the blends are going to come from both breweries because mm. I love what we're making there. And like what we're drinking now, it's not acidic. It's mm-hmm. not like this acid bomb like right. they used to be there it's tart and but there's all these complexities of flavors of brett and funk and earthiness and yeah. cellar mustiness and 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 this is a pretty young bottle it's it's only i think yeah last year so mm. it's a year and a half 
a year and a quarter old now. Um, well, you know, I mean, when it comes in, in the bottle, right? When is. it comes to the history of, of sour beer and goose in particular, you know, I mean, it's it's a beer made by blending, yeah. um, and you know, historically, traditionally, it's been made by you know brewers blending other brewers' wort into their own yeah. in order to you know achieve a, a flavor that they're looking for. It seems like you can kind of accomplish a similar thing, but even with your own stock brewed at different places uh, between here and then the Santa Rosa brew pub. That's the goal. And yet yet when we make temptation, supplication, consecration, or our new intinction beers where Mm -hmm. we're putting grapes in the beer, those are by the batch. Like it always surprises other brewers when I bring them and tour and they ask about Mm -hmm. those beers. And it's like, you know what, temptation, it's, it's by the batch. If there's 64 wine barrels in this batch, all 64 go into the blend unless um, it's there's acetic. And right, if there's acetic, right. then it goes down the drain and we get rid of the barrel. Right. And we never reuse a barrel that's been acetic. Like this morning, I emptied supplication barrels and there was unfortunately one bad barrel that was... That was acetic. You did so. So Vinny Chalurza went down to the the funky bar, uh, yeah, brew house and yeah, emptied, debarreled. Yeah, I do. All right. And I still yeah. do all that myself. So yeah. <laughs> and we have a we have our own process. Like anyone the, else out there in the brewing world so, who thinks they're too important, uh, yeah. yeah, take a lesson. It's my favorite thing to do. Is oh, yeah? the barrels. Yeah. yeah. And the uh, you know we have our own process of emptying barrels that some other breweries have have you know taken our lead on. Like are the if you look at the head of our barrels, there's a nail. That's how we get a sample out so that you want to use a wine thief to break the pellicle. Right. The, and, the old Vinny uh, nail. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then there's a cork down at six o'clock that's okay. basically an, an unused you know, beer cork that we would normally go into our bottles for the sparkling wine champagne style cork. And those, that's how we get rid of the, or get rid of, remove the liquid, the beer from the vessel, from the barrel with fruit in it. Um, and then it goes, you know, we pull the cork out, jam a, tube in a 15 16 od tube the tube goes down to a strainer and then we strain the fruit out and then from there it's pumped you know an average typical brewer would look at that and say oh my god there's like you're exposing it to oxygen it's like yeah i am for like five minutes but this beer has been exposed to oxygen via micro oxygenation through the wood for the last year to three years and if you know anything about winemaking, a little bit of exposure to air at that, you know, pH levels or acid levels isn't that big of a deal. Mm. So anyways, we have this process we use to empty barrels. And um, but, you know, but like our conventional barrel aged beers don't aren't blends. Mm. They're batch brews. And we're trying to make them like a regular conventional beer where hopefully supplication that you drink, you know, last month or last year let's say is the same or you're going to get close to what it is now yeah and that's whereas making beatification is a blend and it really falls back on those roots and so you know because we don't make we do maybe one blend a year two at the most um i still feel like a novice as a blender <laughs> period hands down you know like i mean even even yeah. john van roy at cantillon he's been doing it since he was a kid and yet he still is learning. And I remember him telling me that a couple of years ago. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, how do hops play into this? You know, I mean, I know a lot of uh, sour beer brewers have been in America have been pushing towards using more aged hops, um, you know, embracing that kind of, you know, cheesy flavor, but uh, low alpha acid, but still, uh, still an acid component, which can uh, have a preservative quality and inhibit some of that bacterial growth. 
in order to also keep that acidity down. Is that, does that figure into your process or are you really just working with temperature? Yeah, no, I was, uh, I've been using aged hops since 2004 Mm. in our, uh, beers. And, um, I, I got some aged hops from Yakima or from uh, was hop union back then, back in 2004 and 2004, 2005. And, um, started using them immediately they had some hops that were already aged and um and so i knew about aged hops obviously from belgium but um and that was right when we started in 2006 making the our first spontaneous beer so that was probably in 2006 was probably really when we started using them and and so they've always been a part of it and even temptation supplication consecration and our other barrel aged beers those all get aged hops so um we have like 10,000 pounds of aged hops on site, both in pellet and whole cone <laughs> format. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always buying up hops. And at one point I've had breweries give them to me, like, oh, I got these old hops and I'm like, I'll take them, you know? <laughs> um, so I love the flavor that they contribute. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it, I don't need to go into the science of it. I think most people listening probably know about you know, why you use aged hops and that the alpha acids have dropped and yet the beta acids are still hanging there and there's a preserving effect right. and whatnot. Um, and, and so for all those reasons, you know, I'm a, I'm a traditionalist in a lot of ways, you know, if you listen to the last episode and I'm talking about whole cone hops. And then we just talked about open top fermentation and like, I love the tradition of the recipe of making a spontaneous fermented beer, but the process is where I I love that we've deviated from it yeah. at the pub, and yet now we've got this traditional thing going here, and we are doing it in you know both ways, if you will, a non-traditional and a very traditional way. Our cool ship here is thirteen foot square, and we put ten inches of liquid of wort in it. And the top of the tank is at the bottom of the windowsill. And, and we look back to Jean de Clerc's brewing books and actually found some writings about, uh, about cool ships. And, um, and so there's, it's kind of a mix of old world tradition, but open-minded craft beer innovation and not being so pigeonholed into the past. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of your other beers on on that sour side and some of the the ways that you have, you know, developed some more interesting or unique techniques for some of these. Um, you know, you've been using wine barrels and you know you're using fruit in a number of your beers. Um, how do you how are you getting great results out of some of these blend uh, or blending fruits or macerating beer on fruit? Um, you know, and what have you learned through those kinds of uh, of processes? Yeah, so for our our three main barrel beers are temptation, supplication, and consecration. And the you know backbone of these beers is something that when I started making these beers, the only other breweries that I knew personally that were making them were New Belgium. You know, yeah. Peter was that was the first American sour beer I had been exposed to. I'm sure there was someone making barrel aged beer before right. La Folie, but that's what I was exposed to. And then Tommy at the mm-hmm. time, it was before Lost Abbey was developed, he was doing these beers in the back of Pizza Port. And so Tommy and I kind of learned together. And and Peter was always gracious enough to give us just a, 
a little nibble of information, but not enough. <laughs> I think Lauren always talks about that too. About how so how, so Belgian. Yeah, yeah. So which which was great because yeah. you know I I didn't want to copy them. Um, sure, sure. And, and nor did I want to. Tommy and I didn't want our beers to taste the same. And we're in the middle of wine country. It just made sense to start pairing wine barrels with a specific recipe, and not just like taking a, a beer that you know we brew normally. And add to a barrel it was it was like let's actually develop a recipe around a beer so you know supplication i love pinot noir natalie and i drink a lot of pinot at home so i love that and i love the cherry notes so it was like okay well let's make a beer that's fermented warmer so that you get a lot of ester profile but then we're adding cherries into it but we don't want cherry to be the you know the main star we just want it to be one component of it and and then it was like well you know my goal is to make these year round and and eventually consecration came along like which is how can we do that you know with fresh fruit and do it consistently and it's like well dried fruit and there's really good dried fruit out there so we that's why supplication and consecration are both made using dried fruit consecration with currants and supplication with dried cherries and so it gives us the ability to make them year round and and it's funny it has to pose some interesting challenges uh, in addition to the flexibility that it gives in terms of like maximizing the kind of extraction uh you know from something that's uh, dehydrated like that takes a lot longer because if you think about the you know the 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 beer has to penetrate the fruit and on a soft skin fruit that's fresh let's say raspberries or something like that Mm Cherries are takes it takes a little bit longer, but like raspberries, we make uh, we often in the past have done a charity beer called Frambois for a cure, right? And um, two pounds of fruit per gallon, and it's amazing. So that one we we barrel aged, and the beer gets funky and a little bit sour ahead of time, and then we put it on the fruit. It only takes like three weeks on the fruit. It'll extract everything out of the fruit, and if there's an, a big enough Brett culture, it'll ferment through those sugars. So we're not on the fruit that long. Yeah, and that's something I learned from some Belgian brewers. It was, you know, I saw that and was like, "Ooh, that's a great idea." But that would never work for dried fruit. Right. Right. So we we have a beer compunction that we use pluots on, and um, and we're doing these grape beers now. Some with juice, some with 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 um, you know with the the actual grapes themselves mm-hmm. and um and so those are a lot can be a lot quicker so the fruit for the dried fruit those actually go into the barrel whereas a lot of the fresh fruit stuff that we do at the you know summertime those go into stainless steel tanks for mm-hmm. a short period of time and it's like in and out and we can turn them uh, quite a bit faster because of that and and you know you but you have a very short season there's short a small window there yeah. so the more of these fresh fruit you know, beers that we do, whether it's raspberries, pluots, Sauvignon Blanc grapes, Merlot grapes, we need to be very focused on the tank, the tanks, and how are we going to fit them all through? It's just like a picking window for a, yeah. a hop grower. For something like raspberries, are you uh, are you freezing them first, or are you using them straight fresh? I know some brewers love to break those cell walls down by uh you know by running them through a kind of a freeze thaw process but yeah no we we get them in yeah. and we add them right oh, okay. away yeah. and um you know one of the funnier stories was for compunction um the pluot beer you know i called the local um fruit purveyor and he gets them from the valley uh, not too far from here and they come in and and it was like 
500 pounds of pluots, pretty good amount. And every one of them had a sticker on the fruit. <laughs> so not only did we have to have the, uh, the you know, the, the fruit open, we had to peel oh. the sticker off. So um, poor compunction has always been a redheaded stepchild. Okay. So. Um, you know, I've noticed over the last, you know, five, six years that consumer preferences have uh, shifted a bit when it comes to sour and acidic beer. Um, you know, the, the kind of darker brown Flanders style, you know, sours have seemed to kind of um, given way to more lighter body, blonde, pale kind of sours in terms of consumer preference. Uh, you know, that, how does that uh, how has that impacted the, the beers that you make, knowing that, uh, you know, some of yours like Consecration are uh, are definitely on that kind of, you know, brown, sour, you know, kind of base. Yeah, and, and Consecration is cons- a 10% yeah. beer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's something that we've um, we've definitely seen. Um, what we've what we have noticed is that it's more on the bottle side and draft is still held pretty strong. And so even as, you know, bottle sales has softened for, you know, f- funky, dark brown beer, um, it's, it, we're doing okay draft wise. And so we've had to just shift some of the, um, you know, the sales hmm. from bottle to draft and, and we, but we weren't in the position to also make any new beers. Right. So we just kept making Temptation, Supplication, Consecration, then a few one-offs like Compunction and Frambois. Um, and so it, it really hasn't affected us, but I've seen it for sure. And I'm, you know, I mean, how would, how would you really know this? But I do think that the simpler um, kettle sour beers have cut into barrel-aged beers. And whether it's for price or if it's because... There's just so many more brewers making, you know, barrel aged beers now, and that market is still a pretty niche market. Um, but it also means that we need to just work a little bit harder. So when I toured you through the brewery, we talked to, we you know, tasted Intinction Sauvignon Blanc, which is a Pilsner aged in Sauvignon Blanc barrels uh, with Sauvignon Blanc juice added. And I just opened and poured you Intinction Merlot. And both these beers are not released yet, but Intinction Sauvignon Blanc will be out in the next month or so. And then Intinction Merlot is this beer that we have in our glass now that's got an amazing, beautiful red, looks like a rosé, and, and and the flavor, it has the tannins. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the the change in market just means that we need to be more creative in what we do. And so the idea is to do this line of beers under the Intinction label that are different grapes. So we started with Sauvignon Blanc and now Merlot. And so instead of just being focused on our three core, you know, barrel-aged beers, it's being proactive and trying new stuff and bringing Frambois back, whether it'll be this year or next year, depending on how much, you know, beer we have. Yeah. Um, But... That's that's it. It seems like making grape, uh, you know, wine beer type hybrids uh, using wine grapes 
would be a natural for you right here in wine country yeah. in, in California. Like not not just that, but you also have uh, plenty of friends who are winemakers uh, yeah. in this area with great quality uh, grapes, and you know have a little more of a, a reason to want to work with you because of who you are and where you are. Um, you know what took you so long to get here, and then you know the more important question. Um, what have you found and how do you make decisions about how you process these grapes and how you select them in order to, uh, and then build a, uh, you know, say a, a grist bill and a, an approach towards, uh, you know, a, a foundation, you know, because when you start brewing with wine grapes, you are talking about definitely higher alcohol levels. Um, you know, those, those, you know, grapes are highly fermentable. And so, uh, yeah. you know, there's a different strategy in designing a beer around that. How do you, how do you approach that? Yeah. I think like the, the question about how like we process the grapes yeah. for the intinction Merlot that we have in our glass right now is a perfect uh, lead into this beer because the way that we did it was I used a winemaking technique, um, called carbonic maceration. Mm. And that is there. So there's a style of wine, um, called nouveau. It's typically with the Beaujolais grape. And it's released on the third Thursday of November every year in France. And it's a very traditional uh, wine where you whole cluster ferment, a, in, including on yeah. the stem. Yeah. And then you add the yeast. And literally you have like thousands of fermentations going on in every berry. So for Intinction Merlot, I was hoping to get some of the tannins, which you definitely taste in the beer. But, you know, that meant that I actually wanted less bitterness in the beer. So mostly this beer is using a synambic base. And actually, the recipe is all synambic base. It's just some of it is spontaneously fermented. Some of it is the synambic recipe using all aged hops. So no alpha acid or very little alpha acid, um, but maybe fermented with Saccharomyces. So but the basis is that there is very little bitterness right, in, right. in this beer. And then we had our neighbors at Grand Cru behind us here. I mean, that's one of the great things about being in wine country. Sure. We have a custom crush facility, literally 200 feet. So a <laughs> quick forklift drive away out of our back gate. Yeah. I can have grapes delivered there and they'll process them however I want. So for the Intinction Merlot, we had them destem the grapes but that was it. They weren't pressed. They weren't crushed, crushed or pressed. And then I, I, they put them into a micro bin. I brought them back. We put them into the barrels with the um, beer because our all of our stainless tanks were full. And um, and so the idea was to do this whole berry carbonic maceration process where you end up with a really pretty color because eventually the grapes do explode. But you get a lot less tannins through a whole berry fermentation like that using the exact same winemaking techniques for the same reasons of why you would do carbonic maceration and that's a technique often used in wineries too like in pinot noir production a lot of wineries will go like 10 or 20 percent whole berry or whole cluster maybe they destem them to get to accentuate the fruitiness in a wine whether mm-hmm. it's pinot or whatever typically it's used in pinot and and so you know that's employing a winemaking technique directly to make these beers. On the uh, on the Sauvignon uh, Blanc, how uh, is there a different process for that? Yeah, for that one, we actually um, we work with an old old uh, grape growing family here in Sonoma County, Dutton, and um, they actually Dutton's used to grow hops here, which is really cool because huh. um, this used to be a hop growing region. But um, yeah, for that we uh, have them. 
we crush the grapes and then press them and then get the juice delivered to us. So that's just juice, Sauvignon Blanc grape juice, so no skins or anything. So totally different than the Merlot where we're just blending the juice in. So for that, we make the Pilsner, barrel age it, and then empty the barrels, blend it with the Sauvignon Blanc juice, put it back into barrels to finish the fermentation, and, and then eventually package it. And there's no bacteria in the, in the Sauvignon Blanc contention. All the acidity is just from the grape juice itself. But you do end up with like eight and a quarter, eight and a half percent alcohol beer because it's so fermentable. And, you know, and there, we're a small... So you're barrel aging it, but it's barrel aging in a straight wine barrel, just, you know, no no bacterial impact in yeah, that there's, barrel? Yeah, there's Britannomyces, but oh, no, just okay. no, no lacto, okay. no PDO, and there's a, it's a few different strains. And again, mm. one of the um, benefits of being in wine country is we have access to some not commercially available strains of breath that we can use and so that's that's one of the beers you have that we access do that. to knocker how's that happen yeah there's there's a, there's wine labs in the area okay. that um are paid to basically tell a winery if their wine has breath and then they collect the breath and one in particular knows exactly what I'm looking for in Britannomyces. So there's so when when you look at Brett, that is fascinating. So these labs that are trying to find the stuff that the winemakers don't want in there are culturing this bread. Well, they collect it, and they they just know that you you're interested in these things. Yeah. yeah. And so so when you when you look at Brett, <laughs> sure. you typically characterize it um, in four ethyl guaiacol four eg or yeah. four ethyl phenyl four ep. And 4-EP, the phenol type, is um, more of the, the bad brett, the polluting brett. It's Goodyear tire, rubbery, right. Band-Aid, and, and, and so that's the 4-ethyl The 4-ethyl guaiacol is the nicer brett. That's the spicier notes. Like even um, in a, uh, a German Hefeweizen, that spiciness you get, that's, that's part of that is 4-ethyl guaiacol. And so that's good Brett. And so they're always looking for... So how do they know? I mean, are they, they, you can't really tell that from just looking at cell morphology at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, they've, they've, uh, they've, got, they've got technology in their labs that, All right. that they can um, pick out the, whether it's 4EG or 4EP. But Is the this hard like DNA thing, testing of some sort? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the hard wow. thing about Brett, though, and, and those are the You've two... You've got some nice friends, Vinny. Those are the two main... Com- like flavor yeah, components, yeah. if you will. But there's all these other um, different phenols that Brett makes. And it's not black and white to say that 4-ethyl won't make anything that 4-ethyl phenol will. Yeah. And I'm only using the two main ones because they're, they're the more generic ones, if right, you can call right. Brett generic. Um, but everything has a crossover to it, and it lays on each, it's, each other. So... You, you, like I said, you just can't say that, well, 4-ethyl isn't going to have a little bit of Band-Aid. It might, but it has less. And anyway, so we find these strains and then find the right fit for them. And, and then it doesn't hurt that we make 100% Brett fermented beer. So we can sometimes use that as a, as a little bit of an incubator to test some different stuff out. Um, you, I guess you are uh, stashing these away and then, then grow them up. Uh, you do that internally or do you have uh, folks do that for you? We, uh, for some of these, like 
unique strains of Brett. They'll start them for us at the local lab, mm. and then we'll finish it ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's it's and then but we still buy lots of sure, of sure. commercial, you know, strains from some of the more well known yeast companies yeah. for for sure. Like the conventional sanctification, the hundred percent Brett beer we make. That's all Brett strains that you can just buy yeah. from you know any or all of the main yeast suppliers in the craft Do you do industry. small batches with them just to test them uh, t- and see how the what flavor impacts are before you go prime time with them or yeah some, just, no yeah absolutely okay. we will we have and we have a little homebrew system oh, yeah, that we that right. we still use and um you know for instance the lab that i'm thinking of they they want us to make a batch of sanctification with one particular strain that the microbiologist has in mind but he wants us to ferment it cold like a lager and he's like so focused on that, and I'm so excited to 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 do it at at some yeah. point. But um, they don't have the capabilities to grow. You know, mind you, this isn't a lab that grows yeast right, like we right. think of a conventional lab for a, a craft brewery. They're there for different reasons, sure. and so they can grow a little bit of yeast. And and I'm not going to put Brett in our yeast propagation. You know, on the clean brewery here, <laughs> yeah, it's probably not a good idea. So like getting yeah. enough yeah. Brett to make a 75 barrel batch of cold fermented is, is difficult for both of us. So, you know, it might be something that needs to wait till we have our pilot brewery. And, you know, I talked about it in the last episode about just being patient. Right. And that's one of those things, like if this takes a couple years to get to this point, I kind of like that because it gives me something to look forward to. Well, at least you haven't lost that sense of exploring no, and, no. Uh, and try new things. It's, uh, no, yeah. no, our, uh, our, you know, kind of my core team, that I work with directly, yeah. you know, our production manager, our lead brewer, our head in the lab, so Steven, Zach, and Taylor. Like we meet weekly, and sometimes, and Eric, our our head in packaging, they they look at me sometimes like, like where did you come up with that idea? Like, yeah. that is a harebrained idea, but no, nah, that's going to be pretty fun to to execute. What other crazy ideas have you uh, come up with lately? Uh, well, the the. You know, from the last episode, mixing hops with the gooth. I mean, that was like, yeah. they were like, you did what? You built a, you know, a, a, an outlet on the side of the tank to mix. Um, I've got an idea to put a dry hop vessel on the top of every fermenter so that we can dry hop without degassing the, the tank. So it would be like a hop cannon so you keep it under a little bit of pressure then so it would be under pressure so that we can bung our tanks yeah have all natural co2 but then open a valve the hops drop in and it's all done under pressure so that's something Mm. we'll get to we'll get to eventually because all of our fermenters here are two bar so that we can bung tanks and have fully um, naturally carbonated uh, beer so it's something that we want to work towards we're still force carbonating wouldn't that impact your hops creep though Vinny? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll let you know the next episode. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. I'll yeah. hold you to that. Um, what else, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, your, your sour beer process, uh, uh, have you been excited about lately? And, uh, you know, what other, uh, you know, things have you learned uh, over the last year, especially as you've, you know, brought things back up to speed here? Because you had to pretty much, you know, shut down your sour beer production, move everything mm-hmm. over here to this new uh, production brewery, and then restart everything again or you know pull stuff out of the barrels as you already brewed um you know have you have you learned uh, any new lessons you know one of the nice things about building the brewery from scratch is that you 
hopefully do everything exactly the way you want. And although our barrel room at the old production brewery where the bulk of our barrel beers yeah. were done was climate controlled, um, it was marginal. So to have a true um, a barrel room that when I want it at 58 degrees, it's actually 58 degrees and it's not 62 because that's where a lot of acetic acid gets produced is is the bear the beer just gets a little too warm yeah and and i'm not saying like all the way to the balsamic vinegar but just tiny nuances in the back mm. of your palate and i'm excited that we have that and um and ironically it's tied into the g and d chiller because our barrel room is and our main cold box are actually glycol oh. chilled so it's not a freon system yeah. so our, we built the the chiller big enough to be able to cool the what you saw it's a pretty substantial size barrel room that we have yeah. a thousand wine barrels in now and several fooders and can add a lot more but then it also the you know we we cool our main cold box with glycol also but that that's big and to me slowing the process down is really great because you it takes longer to make these beers but the acidity is so much softer and you know we we saw that years ago at ferdinand court and then we piled more barrels in and really didn't have a means to add any more refrigeration and so the temperature did go up a little bit and and there were there were seasonal times of the year when beers would probably gain more acidity than I probably wanted. And so I'm really excited about about temperature, which seems so basic, but I think brewers forget just how important that is when you're making barrel-aged funky beer. Yeah. Temperature is is everything. And uh, and just organization. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff is less about the true brewing process, but like just how organized the barrel room is and there's a row for the barrel ladder that makes it really easy for al our our funky brewer to get up and i I call it bung patrol just going up the ladder weekly and checking every every barrel that the bung hasn't popped out because if the bung pops out which happens every once in a while more than a couple days that barrel is going to go acetic and so having space and elbow room. Um, we're using fooders for the first time. Really? That's, that's pretty exciting. Um, I'm still 100%, like, I still believe barrels are a better way to go, at least for me, because I yeah. like that you have more um, small vessels. And, like, you know, when I emptied the barrels this morning, you know, every one tastes different, and I taste every barrel. And for me, instead of doing a reserve program, you know, we blend the exceptional barrels in with the good barrels and make a blended product. And if it's bad, of course, we dump it. But, you know, that that's fun because you have these individual, you know, right. vessels making beer. And then, you know, if the we typically have it from Ferdinand Court, it would be 56 wine barrels is about 100 beer barrels of beer. And so if that was in a fooder, that would only be one, you know, one character. One character, yeah. And whereas with <laughs> right. small barrels, but I, I do also recognize that fooders give you the ability to make large volumes. And Natalie keeps telling me to stop buying them, but I just bought 
two more, four more actually. But again, you know, we're in wine country and we have yeah. these wineries that are coming to us saying, hey, we have this oval fooder. We've got this and that. It's like, how can you pass it up? And But we need this, the space too yeah. because I think a part of, you know, us moving forward with our funky beers is having diverse and not just making temptation, supplication, and consecration. In fact, we may need to bring, pull back on those to be able to make more right. to give the consumer a, a, a wider choice to go f- to pick from. Yeah, that makes sense. You have to create some new beers to make in those fooders that are uh, suited yeah. for those fooders. And 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 for us, it's a it's good. Most of those will be fruit beers, and yeah. it's just being able to make volumes of a base beer that can express the fruit of this or that. Yeah, and and, and they're all different, you know, sizes of fooders from twenty barrels up to one hundred and fifty barrels of beer. For a home brewer out there that's uh, venturing into making some traditional sour beers, uh, what are the what, what should they pay the most attention to? Uh, well, you know, if you want to make uh, something that's that's got a almost a Rodenbach type character with a little bit of that acetic quality, you know, you can half fill a barrel or whatnot. But you know, I'm a huge fan of having really clean or as clean of sour beer as possible, and. So, you know, topping your barrels is, you know, we top our barrels, not monthly or anything, but yeah. we'll, we'll top our barrels at least once. Mm. And, um, you know, you can, you can make um, funky beer at home, but it's, it's a lot harder. And I always suggest to get a bunch of homebrewers together and do a barrel. Because one thing that's often overlooked is the stave thickness. So if mm. you have a five or ten gallon wine barrel, and you can find them pretty easily now, right, right. Um, but that stave for that five or ten gallon barrel is so much thinner than a stave on a fifty or sixty gallon, you know, wine barrel, conventional wine barrel, that you're going to have so much more micro oxygenation happening that you're going to end up with something that's a lot more acetic. Right. And so that's something that is often overlooked on the homebrew side and is probably, you know, in some cases, you know, you need to come up with some hybrid process. Maybe you're pulling the beer out of the barrel sooner and then just going to stainless or a carboy or whatever. Right, right. I mean, but, and also don't forget that plastic is is porous as well right, right. and years ago I, I i don't know who's if it was in just sparrow's book where he has the porousness i think it's in uh wild brews just yeah. sparrow's book and he has that and he shows and i don't remember the specifics of it but um but you know plastic can be just as oxidizing to a beer right you know, over right. a long period so um so you know figuring out this hybrid process that to to be clean and and that just may be half barrel half stainless for yeah. for, for an example so. uh you mentioned uh lauren limbach of new belgium earlier on the podcast and uh you also uh, hinted at having a fun story i did uh, before we uh, before we close uh you want to share that with yeah me? so i'm staring at a bottle of beatification the first beer yeah. we had and, the, and i briefly mentioned when we were talking about our spontaneous program that we um the first time we made beatification, it was not spontaneously fermented. And so um, Peter Buchart, um, who was at New Belgium at the time, um, told Tommy and I that he had 20 uh, old La Folie barrels that he was going to give us. And then I said, well, great, we'll ship them to me, and then I'll take the, the 10 and ship them down to Tommy to make it easy on you. 
So in the end, Peter only had four uh, wine barrels that he shipped us because all the employees took them and turned them into planters. <laughs> so I just randomly kept two and then sent two to Tommy. And I put a, a blonde base beer in them or whatever. And it was aging for some time. And then Lauren was up, I think, at a class at UC Davis and visiting Natalie and I. And she goes, oh, can I see the barrels? We take her into the barrel room at the pub. And she looks at the barrel and and she's literally cursing Peter out <laughs> and crying at the same time as she's also saying, oh, my God, it's PH1. And and PH1, they had PH1 through PH10, and they were the original lawfully barrels and, like, the best. And uh, and as it turned out, Peter, like, gave most of them away. That's why she was <laughs> Some of cursing. our planters right now. That's yeah. why she was cursing Peter. But then she was crying because PH1 was, like, the was the golden child and if you could you know like had a favorite barrel that was it and so she was also at the same time like so happy that it didn't actually get turned into a planter so i i opted to take the two barrels and bottle them separately so there was beatification batch one and then there was beatification batch one dash ph1 and then in the just like on the pliny label where it's like drink for us do not age blah 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 it was. The, I told the story of Lauren coming and visiting us on PH one uh, bottle, and and as just as a quick follow up to that, PH one was the inspiration for the rare barrels name. Yeah, and so the yeah. rare barrel is named after technically a barrel PH one, and so now PH one has been sent around, and it's almost like have you ever seen the movie The Red Violin? Yeah, that's and it's about this violin. Sure. It's an amazing movie. With, now PH one is back with Peter now, and purpose, Peter and right? Peter has yeah. it now at purpose, yeah. and and it it was we've had it twice, and it was at um, the Rare Barrel, it's yeah. been at New Belgium twice for sure, and so. My hope is that it. I popped continues. over there the day when they were blending uh, that first rare barrel, <laughs> New Belgium uh, yeah. edition of PH one. Yeah. yeah, I hope so. I hope that barrel continues to get passed around yeah. to our our friends in the craft industry, and it's it's definitely rode hard and put away wet, I guess is the term. But it's it's a great barrel, and it has such a story. Uh, behind it from everyone who's touched it, and I and I hope more barrels, more breweries touch it along the way. Well, that speaks to the collegiality and, uh, you know, general feel of craft beer. And, uh, you know, it's uh, wonderful to see creative brewers doing things together, helping each other out. And, uh, you know, that inspiration goes both ways. Uh, You've inspired a whole bunch of folks, and I know a whole bunch of folks are continuing to inspire you, uh, you know, in in due turn. So absolutely. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Yep, of course. This was fun. Yeah. Appreciate you visiting us in Windsor. You know, it's uh, it's been fun to get up here and see it. And and, uh, uh, I uh, I don't know what took me so long. Yeah. But now getting to, to, to see it here, uh, you know, in person and experience it, uh, you know, has been fantastic. Every, everyone should make a trip up here no, to thanks. Windsor and visit the brewery. And you should uh, drink as much of this intinction with Merlot grapes yeah. as you possibly can. Because once, once we release it. Once you release it, because <laughs> this is fantastic. Thanks. And I'm going to drink as much as I can before I uh, go to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, thank you to G&D Chiller, the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Thank you to SS Brewtech, uh, who is advancing brewing equipment design, performance, and quality. Uh, thank you to BSG and bring uh, the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG. 
And thank you to craftbeer.com that brings you the stories and personalities behind America's small and independent breweries. Vinny Chalurzo, Russian River, thanks for joining me. Thanks. Appreciate the time. It was fun. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.